Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Michael Horton is a pastor and an author and theologian. He once wrote, a church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. So here we are on this beautiful rainy day, gathered, celebrating our 85th church anniversary. A church that was began by 13 members out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. When you look at that picture, you see that there was really nothing out here. You don't see any of the surrounding buildings. You don't see my house. You don't see the sheriff's station. 13 members who understood that the hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in remote areas. 13 members who have long since been gone. 13 members that most of us have never even met or heard of. But 13 members who have left a legacy in this community, a legacy of faithfulness that brings us together even this morning. And that's why we celebrate our church anniversary. That's why we take the time to read the names of pastors that have gone before us. It's important that we we remember where our church has been. It's important for us to remember the lessons of the past. Like for instance, did you know that the children's ministry building, some of you might know this, but that building over there was constructed out of reclaimed lumber from the Manzanar internment camp. It's just like the church to take something that's for it's broken and and stained and turn it into something beautiful. This church took the lumber that was used to imprison Japanese citizens, Japanese American citizens, and used it to build a building where children can be set free through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has left a legacy of love and faithfulness. But then there are also the difficult times, the dark times in our church's history. We've had them just like every other church. Like in the 1950s when some of the members of of this church had a grievance and a disagreement with some of the other members of this church. And the result was a church split, which started the Boron Bible Church. I actually met one of the children who, uh, of the pastor who was leading the church at the time who went through that dark time. And he actually is the one that walked me through kind of the details of what had happened. And I've actually talked to other people in this community that remembered when that happened and confirmed that that's indeed the story. And he told me that his mother, the pastor's wife, uh, was led to believe by many of the former members of this church that she was the reason for the church split. And he said that that fact haunted her the rest of her life. He said that even near the end of her life, she, you know, the pain of the church split, the church split, the church that she'd loved so much, 
were still very acute. Good and bad, it's important that we remember the lessons of the past that guide us towards the future. Even now, we face difficulty. Our church family at times over the years has grown quite large with many people gathering for worship. But then there are times like now when the Lord prunes our numbers. There have been times when our budget has increased and we would be able to increase our programming and do more things. And then there are times like this where we have to make major cuts, where we trim back on some things. We're at a place right now where we have had to drastically cut um, how the church supports my family. And the church has supported my family for, for nearly 11 years, and I've been able to raise my children. But we're at a t place where we have to just trim back, which puts me in a position to have to take a second full-time job, which is okay, by the way, right? Because we trust what God is doing, and we trust in His provision. But understand, this isn't the first or second or third or even the last time that something like this will happen in the life of the church. There are always seasons in ministry, seasons of planting and growth and harvesting, and then there are seasons of pruning and preparing and plowing and, again, planting and sowing. And it's because of this, it's important that we remember where we've been and we stay connected to our history and the faithful believers that have gone before us. Because First Baptist Church has endured not just because of the pastor's names that we know, right? The church has endured because of the countless numbers of people who have worshipped here and served here whose names that we, we don't know. We don't know the names of every person who has held the trays to pass out the elements to the Lord's table. We don't know all the names of all the teachers who have labored to prepare a lesson to teach children here. We don't know all the people who have swept floors, fixed buildings, cooked meals for potlucks, made a point to go visit someone who's hurting, who went to those who were indigent, who've invited their friends to messages. We don't know all the people who have prayed desperately for, for their pastors and for the members of this church. We don't know all the people who have sat in countless business meetings. We don't know them all. But they all, every one of them, have left their mark on this church. And by their individual and corporate efforts, they have moved First Baptist Church and the cause of Christ forward. And so it's important we remember where we've been. But it's also important to remember who we are as a church. You see, the church... I think is important for us to remind ourselves of is not a club, right? It's not some gathering of people with common interests, right? Lots of those kinds of organizations are, are available and helpful, but most of them come and go. The church is something more. It's not an organization. It is a living, breathing organism. It is a lie, which means its connections and relationships are far more important in fact, the church, as the Bible describes it, is the body and the bride of Christ. It is the body which Christ himself is the head. It is the bride of which Christ himself is the husband. And so the church is much more than simply 13 people agreeing to hang out together having potlucks, as cool as that is. It's the divine institution where people are drawn together by God into a covenant community for the glory of God. 
That's why the mission of First Baptist Church is to glorify God through worldwide worship, which is accomplished through the objectives of the Great Commission, which are evangelism, baptism, and discipleship. We evangelize to, to bring new people into the kingdom. We baptize them and make them part of the body of Christ. And then we train them up and teach them to do the same thing. The church is the covenant community of living and working together on mission for Christ. And this church has two dimensions. There's the universal dimension, the universal church, or from, from the Latin, the Catholic church, not to be confused with the Roman Catholic church. Universally, the church is the body of all believers everywhere our brothers and sisters in Christ that are gathered in other places. It's all believers throughout history. Our confession of faith puts it this way in chapter 26. The Catholic, that is the universal church, may be called the invisible church with respect to the internal work of the Holy Spirit of truth and of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ, her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The universal body is all of the believers who have lived, who live, and one day will live. Then there's the local dimension of the church. This is what we think about the most when we say church, the local dimension of the church. This is the visible manifestation of the body of Christ in a geographic location who who gather for regular corporate worship, who encourage, exhort, and equip each other to live on mission for Christ. Again, the, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is helpful. It says, In exercising the authority entrusted to Him, the Lord Jesus, through the ministry of His Word, by His Spirit, calls to Himself out of the world those who were given to Him by His Father. They are called so that they will live before Him, in all the ways of obedience that he prescribes for them in his word. Those who are called, he commends to live together in local societies or churches for their mutual edification and the fitting conduct of public worship that he requires of them while they are in the world. It goes on to say the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life, their obedience to all to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. I want you to notice the confession calls the local church a local society. The term society just simply means an aggregate of people living together in community. That's what the church is, a collection of people with differing lives and differing backgrounds and experiences living together in community. And what is a community? Well, the word community has at its root the word common. And it's the idea then a community is a collection of people that have unity in the things that they have in common. What, what is it that, you, that, that, you, that unites the church? What is it we have in common? What we have in common is our faith in the one true living God. As Paul explains, I therefore, a prisoner 
For the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The church is, is a community, big or small, that is unified by a common faith. Despite our, their diversity, despite the differences in backgrounds, despite differing skin colors, despite differing ideologies politically, despite their personality types, and even despite shortcomings. The church is a community of people unified together by their common faith in Jesus Christ. But it's actually even deeper than that. More intimate than that. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and the buttress of the truth. Now in this text, this is something that I preached on many times. Right? And the reason for that is because this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. If there's anything that I love, it is the family of God. In fact, as we've seen, as we've been working through Romans chapter 12, we have begun to look at what Paul says and how we are to live in light of the gospel. And the first group of people that Paul talks about with respect to how we live in light of the gospel is what? The church. And so what we know about the church is foundational to our Christian life. And that's why we, we come back to this subject in this text so often. And what we see in this text is a number of things that, are, that, that bear remembering. And the first thing that we need to remember and keep an eye on is the truth that the church that belong to us belongs to God. It is the church of the living God. It is his institution. We all love to say, my church, our church. And in a sense, we have that sense, but ultimately it belongs to him. And he is the one who created it. He is the one who sustains it. He is the one who causes it to grow. He is the one who prunes it. He is the one who sees it through the storm. The church exists for his purposes. And so it is to be what he created to be. And it's to be ran how he ordained for it to be ran. And the members of the church are to live and worship in a way that he has ordained for them to live and worship. Secondly, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth or the foundation of the truth. The church is the God-ordained instrument that he is using to, to defend and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. There are people who are very influential in Christianity who have a big platform. There are pastors who have a broad audience. There are people and organizations that are well-known but don't let us misunderstand the church is the instrument that God has created and ordained to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of this world. And as such, the objectives of the church are simple, right? They are to defend the truth, 
declare the gospel, disciple believers, and demonstrate the pattern of worship for the entire world. Those are the objectives of the church, not entertain people, not encourage them to live their best life now, not to convince people that, hey, you know, just turn to Jesus and you'll have a pain-free, problem-free life, and certainly not to twist people's arms into believing. Our job isn't, the mission of the church isn't to cajole people or, you know, or contort people. The objectives are quite simple, to defend the truth, declare the gospel, disciple believers, and demonstrate the pattern for worship for the world. The church defends the truth or the orthodox teaching of scriptures handed down by the apostles. The church corporately and individually declares the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone around us. That's why we say, sow the seed. The church is the context for believers to be discipled and trained and encouraged to grow towards spiritual maturity. And the church together demonstrates what it looks like to glorify God through worship, both corporately and in the life of individual believers. I certainly could spend four weeks just on those four points right there. But notice what, Paul, what else Paul says. He says the church is the household of the living God. And this is where I really want to land. It is the household of God. And when Paul uses the Greek word that we translate as household, the truth is he's not talking about a building. I think we know that, but I think it's, it bears remembering because the church is not a building. We do say, I'm going to go down to the church, right? But the church, the real church is not brick and mortar and roofing shingles. The church certainly does and can own a building, but it's not the church itself. So what does Paul mean when he says household of God? Well, as a first century man, what he's talking about is what makes up a household. And he's talking about the members of a household. He's talking about a family. Because that's what a church is. It's a family. Right? But not just any family. It is, it is God's own family. Which is one of the mind-blowing and glorious doctrines of the Christian faith. The doctrine of adoption. It is one that I spend hours and hours thinking about. It's one that I just meditate on. It just, it surprises me. It shocks me that God adopted sinners who were rebelling against him to be his family. God, by the counsel of his own will, does for us all that's necessary not only to make peace with him, who were his enemies, but to bring us near him and to reconcile us to him and to transform us into his children, his family. And this bears meditating on. Because again, I think it's important for us to think about this. We, all of us, rebelled against him. We, at different times in our own lives, suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We all knew God existed, but we refused to worship him as God and give thanks to him. I have worshipped so many other things in my life that he should have consigned me to hell a long time ago. We who worshipped all manner of created things, we who, commit, who were condemned and were without excuse, God took us 
not because we decided to clean ourselves up. He took us in our sin, in our rebellion, in the midst of our blasphemy and the spurning of his grace. And he took out our hearts of stone and put in us a new heart of flesh and made atonement for our sins. And then he clothes us in the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ and him alone so that we can be members of his holy family. I don't know about you, but if, if, if the gospel message was come to Jesus and God will sign a peace treaty with you and you won't be at war with him, that would have been plenty for me. That would have been enough, right? God's wrath won't be abide on you anymore, right? That would have been enough. But what we get is not just that. What we get is being adopted into his family, being able to look and cry out to heaven, Abba, Father. Not slaves, but children. And that's the picture we see in the New Testament, by the way, when you read the story of the prodigal son. If you need hope today, then that's a story that you just need to read. Again, the young son spurns his dad's love and squanders his inheritance and makes a shipwreck of his life. And then he realizes, man, I'm in a mess. And he repents, hoping that his father would at least accept him back just as a slave. And the father, instead of begrudgingly allowing him to be a slave, runs to him and throws himself on him and kisses him and, and then puts the robe on him and the shoes on his feet and the rings on his finger and welcomes him home to be his beloved child. What a glorious illustration of that truth. God chose by his grace to restore us back into right relationship with him as family. God is the one who reconciles us to himself. This is what Paul said, if you remember, in Romans chapter 5, for while we were enemies, not while we were getting ourselves cleaned up, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so the church is the family of God because we have been reconciled by God to God. And he also has reconciled us to each other which I know is something we've been talking about, especially since we've been talking about Romans chapter 12. God not only reconciled us to himself, but reconciled us to one another. But this is a truth that bears coming back to again, because this is a truth that's lost on so many people today, even those people who say that they belong to Christ. When God adopted us, he not only brought us into right relationship with him, he brought us into right relationship with each other. And I know that I've said this before, but again, it bears constant repeating. It's okay. It can be blank up there. No. Okay. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's the computer over there. Yeah. Because the truth is not something that many people think about or take seriously, especially in our Western culture. We're so very individualistic and, and consumeristic in our attitudes, right? And, and we prize individualism. We prize the idea that a person is responsible for himself. We prize personal freedom. And we believe that our personal choices are about us and what we want. And it doesn't matter, you know, what everyone else does or thinks. And this individualism, in many ways, has been good for our country. I think that rugged individualism has been good for us as a nation 
because the ideal of personal freedom and personal responsibility is create one of the greatest and freest nations in the world. But we do have a tendency to take things to an extreme, and we've done that. And on the downside, this individualism become, has become the lens that shapes how many of us see the entire world. Even our faith in Christ, especially their relationship to the church. And it's because of this that many Christians think their relationship with God is simply about them individually and Jesus. They have made an individual profession of faith and they've made Jesus their personal Savior and they think, okay, that's all I need. I got Jesus, I got my Bible, I've got my worship tombs, and I'm good. And while that is true, that we come to Jesus individually, and it's true that we have a personal, individual relationship with Christ, and, and Jesus right, must become the, the Lord and Savior of our life, the Christian life has never been about an individual's own relationship with God only. It has always been about God and other people. A relationship with God has always included a relationship with other believers. You know how I know? What is the standard of God's righteousness that he calls everyone to? It's the law of God. The law of God is his standard for righteousness. It's the mirror by which we stand and we look and we realize that we have fallen short and realize that we desperately need a savior. It's the law. And what did Jesus say is the summary of the law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. The law of God is about a relationship with God, and it is about our relationship with other people. In fact, the Ten Commandments, a more detailed summary of the law, still bears that out. The first half of the Ten Commandments is about a relationship with God. The second half is about living in community with other people. A relationship with God has always included a relationship with people. And the thing that we need to realize is you can't have one without the other. When we come to faith in God, not only are we entered into a relationship with God under the covenant of grace, we are entered into a covenant community by the same grace, His family. And what that means is we are all called to live and to work and to serve inside this covenant community, the church, the family of God, which again was what we talked about in Romans chapter 12. Paul begins to explain how we live in light of God's mercy, in light of the gospel. And he says that in light of that, the first thing is, is to live a life honoring God by giving your whole self to him, renewing your mind so that you will know his will. And the very next part, all the way to the end, almost to the end of chapter 16, he's gonna talk about how we live then in light of the gospel with the rest of the world, other people. And the very first group of people that he addresses, we've said, is the church, the family of God. And the thing that you and I need to understand is we have been reconciled not just to God, but to each other. Just as we've been reconciled to God, we are in right relationship with Him. We have been put in right relationship with one another. And the thing that we need to understand is that being reconciled to each other is not something that we work toward. It's already accomplished in Christ. 
As Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. We are, by faith, united in Christ. If you have, it has already been accomplished. We have been reconciled together as family. The thing is, now we just need to live that way. The dividing of wall of hostility, as Paul says, has been removed. What separates us, the only thing that separates us now is what is up here. Because all of us, all our sins have been atoned for. Our sins against God and our sins against each other, they have all been atoned for. The barriers between us have been removed. And just as the veil has, was torn in the temple, the truth of our being reconciled is a subtle reality. We just need to believe it and live it. It's a subtle truth. A truth that we need to walk in. And it's our divine calling by God to live as those who have been reconciled to each other as family. Even when it's hard to do so. Just as we live as those who've been reconciled to God even when it's hard. You've been reconciled to God and each other. So live it out. Because if you're in Christ, you're a part of each other. Remember Paul said, for as one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And understand, I, I do know that this isn't always easy because family life is messy, right? Not to mention we still are this on this side of heaven in a fallen, broken world in bodies that are frail, weak, and influenced by sin. And we all have our own personalities and our own issues and our own fears and insecurities and habits and worries. And because of that, sometimes family life just can be hard. But the thing for me, after all of these years, what I find strange is that we just expect we just expect messiness in our earthly families. We, we, we expect that there will be times of tension in our earthly families. We expect that at some point someone's going to get their feelings hurt. We just expect that at some point people are in our family are going to be irritated. They're going to be misunderstood. We just expect it, but we remain family nonetheless. And it's the same with our relationship with God. Our relationship with God oftentimes is difficult, not because of Him, but because of us. We're the ones who fall into sin. We're the ones that get distracted and don't spend enough time with Him. We're the ones who take our eyes off of Christ and get overwhelmed in the storm of life. But we remain family nonetheless. Why? Because he doesn't give up on us. He's the one that adopted us. Praise the Lord that he doesn't give up on us. What I find strange, though, is we expect family life to be messy in our families and even with God, but many people seem to expect that our church family life with other people is just somehow supposed to be different. We just expect that our family life at church is not going to be messy. We have expectations that somehow we're going to give each other the best of ourselves all the time, every moment of the day. We have this expectation that we're always going to see eyeball to eyeball. 
because for some reason we are subconsciously expecting our church family members because they are Christian somehow to be something that none of us are. Perfect. Regardless of their struggles, regardless of how, how they're feeling, regardless of what they're going through, regardless of all the common ailments and things that plague all of us, for some reason, we expect that church family life to be perfect and that someone in our church family won't rub us the wrong way, won't, you know, do something to hurt our feelings, that we're not going to get irritated or offended by them, or that, you know, that everyone around us is always going to be smiles and sunshines in our church family that we're just somehow going to always agree on every little issue. What's even worse is oftentimes we expect perfection, but then we don't talk about it. We expect that in our relationships with God that things aren't always going to be perfect. In fact, we desperately cling to the hope that God will have mercy on us and forgive us when we invariably do something that offends Him. But why do we expect perfection in our relationship with one another? And again, this is a question that grieves my heart. As a minister of the gospel, I have poured out my life and my heart over the years for other people to meet them in their times of need and to be there no matter what happens. But, but when you don't, but then somehow you forget to say the right thing in the right moment. Or that you forget to say happy birthday because you forgot or it was on your calendar, say happy birthday, but you just got busy and didn't say happy birthday. Or any of the number of many slights that can happen because we're people and we don't always say the right things or do the right things. Or maybe, you know, you said the words, but your facial expressions didn't line up with what they thought your facial expressions were supposed to be like. Many people who call on the name of Christ just simply get hurt or upset or frustrated and they just, just walk away. And worse, many of them will walk away and not tell you why or talk about it. Why do so many refuse to forgive and seek forgiveness? Why do so many simply withdraw from each other? Why do so many people just walk away from their church family rather than walking towards rec reconciliation? It baffles me how someone can look me in the eye Sunday after Sunday, even during the week, counseling sessions, look at me and say, I appreciate you. Man, I love you. Right? I'm just grateful for the word of God. And then suddenly just become distant and disappear. I once reached out to um, someone who, who stopped worshiping and coming to church quite a while back. And it was somebody I was really close to, somebody I really had spent a lot of time with and somebody that I had grown very, very fond of and, and just I felt like a very dear brother in Christ, right? And, and suddenly that just gone. And I saw so I was trying to get a hold of them and trying to find out what's going on. And he just wouldn't talk to me. He just sent me an email. He just said that uh, he didn't want to get into it because he didn't want to damage our, our friendship. And at that point, I'm going, what friendship? And in spite of my efforts to call repeatedly in text and email, 
right? We have not actually had a physical word spoken between us in over two years. Why? Why? Why do we expect so much out of our church family we don't expect out of our own family? Why do we expect so much out of our church family we don't even expect out of ourselves in our relationship with God? But I want you to understand, this is not something new. This is not a unique American experience. It's not even unique to, to Baptist churches. This is an issue that's, that's plagued the church for centuries. In fact, our confession a document written over 400 years ago says it like this. Uh, it says, church members who have been offended and have performed their duty concerning the person by which they are offended should not disrupt any church action or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration or any of the ordinances because of the offense at any of their fellow members. Instead, they should look to Christ in their further action of the church. Church family members have been offending each other and hurting each other and stepping on each other's toes from the very beginning. Why? Because we're people. In fact, much of what you see that Paul writes in the New Testament is about that fact. One of the, the common themes we will see that Paul writes over and over and over again is standing up for the unity of the faith in spite of our differences. Again, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Church family life has always been messy. It always has been. Family life has always been challenging. We still live this side of heaven. Though we are free from bondage to sin, we still are all influenced by it and struggle with it. But in spite of it, we are called to walk in unity. Why? Because we're a family. And because we're united by a common faith. We're united by the body of Christ. We have been reconciled to each other. Our union with Christ unites us together. As he says, Paul says, there is one Spirit, just as we are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. It is true that family life can be hard, but we have already been reconciled to each other. We just simply need to act like it. Okay, all right, how? <laughs> Well, the first thing is to remember that we are reconciled to God because of what Christ has done. That is the center point of the Christian life, what Jesus has done. So many people talk about what would Jesus do. No, that's not the point. The point is what Christ has done for us. We are reconciled to God and each other because of the same thing. We are family with God and each other because of grace. Secondly, the way that we live as family is what we are going to talk about in the next part of Romans chapter 12. And I'm just going to give you just a quick preview of what Paul says. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. I could just leave it there, right? We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. How we live together in the family of God, actually the short answer is one word. It's love. True, genuine love. And the kind of love that Paul's talking about here is agape love. It's the no strings attached, the unconditional kind of love. It's the kind of love that we need to have for one another. It's the only kind of love that will help us to navigate this life together. And by the way, it is the love, the kind of love that all of us, all of us, all of us needs desperately. A genuine, real kind of love. Not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. Because that's the kind of love that God had for us. That's the kind of love that caused him to adopt us. That's the kind of love that we are to have for each other because, because we're not some religious organization. We're not some friendly club. We are family. The family of the living and true God. We pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.